In this podcast, we finish up our series on the book of Daniel. We finish up Daniel's last vision with consideration of the Antichrist and the promise of the restoration of Israel as God's chosen people. In this passage, we are reminded of the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And accordingly, we are also reminded of our responsibility to walk in God's ways as a testimony to the lost. And through this, we are encouraged about the importance of sharing the gospel with all whom the Lord puts in our path. Welcome to a series on the book of Daniel. This podcast is presented by Sefer Audio Productions in conjunction with Foothill Bible Church of Lincoln, California. These messages are presented as part of the Adult Sunday School program. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cragen. Now let's step into the classroom as the session is about to begin. All over the world, people are looking for peace, especially right now, of course. You could have said especially any time probably in history, but especially right now. And of course with peace, we're, we would just settle right now for a little civility would be nice. But there's all sorts of definitions of every nation, every individual wants peace and what they mean by that varies. You know, for government or a prison for that matter, there are different definitions. Some equate peace with isolationism. Just leave me alone. I deal with some of those in marriage counseling. I have some peace and quiet. (laughs) Then... Kid counseling too? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I still remember a 13-year-old that would constantly ask their parents for something. They knew that if their parents understood what they were asking, of course, the parent would agree. So they would just try explaining it over and over again in different ways. Of course, they weren't really doing it in different ways. And the parents will say, we understand you. The answer is no, it can't be. You obviously don't understand. Anyway, so yeah, peace and parenting will probably be good sometimes. And of course, <laughs> for those in power, peace means everybody agreeing with me, me being in control. And of course, that's especially true in the Middle East, where the way there's going to be peace is if everybody converts to our religion, then there will be peace, right? But that doesn't make any sense because they killed themselves. Yeah, right. For different sects and different... Oh, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So there can be no peace, of course. And others define peace as everyone, they disagree with shutting up. (laughs) We're right. We believe in free speech as long as your free speech agrees with our free speech. Otherwise, just close it up. But one thing everybody seems to agree on is the need for peace. And as believers, of course, we understand that while there will be moments of peace, and we desire it too, absolutely, we understand that there will be no true peace, that is, until there's a one world government under the authority of an absolute dictator one who will exercise power over all peoples, not allowing any disagreement with his authority. Wait, you say, isn't that a description of the Antichrist rule? No. For this form will be the form he tries to establish, but that doesn't last very long or work very well. No, what we're talking about is a description of the Millennial Kingdom, 
when Christ rules, when he will have absolute sway, when the whole earth will be under a theocracy, which has never been the case. Right? One where God exercises his absolute authority, only then is there going to be worldwide peace. But even that one is going to be broken for a moment. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So even during the thousand years, he's going to have to rule absolutely because human beings will still be human beings. And at the end of the millennium, the whole world rises up in rebellion for a moment. And then there will be true eternal peace after that. But nevertheless, we still want peace. And for a lot of, for a lot of people to think, well, or I used to think, well, the United Nations, that'll bring peace. That's worked really well, huh? I don't know anybody believes that one anymore. And then, of course, look how the European governments tried to pull it all together with the EU. And that hasn't worked out. They're bailing out right and left. And, of course, with that attempt to revive the old Roman Empire, it's about as busted as the old Roman Empire. The whole European financial situation is in serious trouble again. So you can see how the world might be ready for somebody that comes along and says, I can bring you peace. And that one will be the Antichrist. Joshua stood calmly on the airplane ramp while the excited crowd applauded. He spoke and the power of his voice convinced even the skeptical that a charismatic leader had come to Israel. I have come to aid my adopted country. I have come to the land of my forefathers. I have come as one citizen. I have come as one man. I have come to offer my help. We can defeat those who boast of tossing us into the sea. No, we will defeat them. We will triumph. The crowd burst into hysterical applause and clapping. One student raced forward to the microphone and started to chant. Saul has slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. Joshua is millions. Later at the Knesset, Joshua, Joshua, shouted one of the ministers. Yes, Joshua, echoed another. It's possible, said Marcus Zelig, that God might be performing a great miracle in our midst, and we're too proud or too dim-witted to perceive it. He paused and surveyed the other members. Think of our rich history, ladies and gentlemen. Remember when God's covenant people come to desperate straits and they cried out for help, God answered. God raised up Moses, a Gideon, a Deborah, or Japheth, a Judas Maccabeus. And a tinny voice cried out, You are Joshua Gad Ericano. You are God's deliverer for us. They didn't know it, but the Antichrist had come. So, we're looking at the very end of chapter 11 and moving on into Daniel 12, which is his last vision. Remember we said that chapter 10 is sort of an introductory section. Chapter 11 is pretty much the vision. And chapter 12 kind of wraps everything up. And so what we're seeing here is this individual that is the world's last ruler preceding the millennial kingdom. Now, 
keep in mind, and this becomes very important in understanding the book as a whole, to the extent that we're keen, of course, is that the bulk of Daniel's prophecies have been fulfilled. That this last passage, which goes from 1136 to 12.4, can't be tied clearly to any identifiable historic event. Remember, everything that's come before, we can tie it to history. Very specifically, we saw Cleopatra in here. And so, since this section can't be, that only leaves two possible conclusions. One, if this has also been fulfilled, we can't identify how it has been fulfilled or tie it to anything in history. Or, secondly, that the only other possibility is it will occur in the future. And, of course, I think that's the reasonable conclusion we want to draw here. So, we need to come to some kind of an understanding of the focus of the passage, and then I'm going to spend some time saying that we can apply what we find here. By looking at the characteristics of the Antichrist, we can see in the extreme that there's a major difference between the behavior of one who belongs to Satan and the one who belongs to God. It's a matter of focus. And that helps us understand and have expectations that are accurate when we deal with and make clear the importance of our walk, our testimony, when we deal with those who are following Satan. Even those who don't realize it. Because there are good people who are following Satan without even knowing that's what they're doing because they're not following God. That's the only two alternatives. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And there are a lot of good people who haven't accepted Christ, good from a human standpoint, who don't realize that those are the only two alternatives. This is why we're so concerned with young people. You don't want to marry a non-believer because look who you end up with a father-in-law. So it creates all kinds of problems. But that also makes it that much more important. And this is really problematical as I see people today who present as Christians and then look at the way they present themselves. Why the quality of our walk is such an issue. And especially now. Because we can have strong opinions about things that are going on, can't we, as Christians. But how we deal with them and present them First and foremost, we need to remember we're believers and present ourselves accordingly. And that's more important than our strong positions in some of these areas that are important but not as important as our calling. So that all flows out of this. So as we look at this, it's very clear that while the normal flow of the text might lead one to conclude that the king of verse 36 is the same as the previous ones, the difficulty is, again, this doesn't relate to anything in the past. And it certainly doesn't, while it parallels the career of Antiochus, and we've already seen that, it doesn't relate to anything we know specifically about him. So let's pick up at verse 36 of chapter 11 and read to the end. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. 
He shall honor the God of fortress instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Antiochus was never that successful. He didn't accomplish these things. So that being the case, we cannot be talking about him here. So if we're not, and we can't identify this to any past history, then the reasonable position is to take this has not yet happened. And so what are we talking about here? We're talking about the coming of the Antichrist because it fits that pattern, this individual. Remember, the Antichrist is not going to be subject to any power or authority other than his own, which comes to him by Satan. But in case of Antiochus, what happens? He magnifies himself above other political authorities. And that didn't work out very well for him. But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, speaking to this individual, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or an object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be a God. Now again, Roman emperors declared themselves gods at some point, right? But... Antiochus did not sit in the temple claiming to be a god. He desecrated the temple. And none of the Roman Empire has ever made it to Judea. So we're talking about something in the future. And as part of this action, this individual blasphemes God in a way that's unique. Revelation 13, 5 through 6 says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed, notice again that idea here, it was allowed, meaning God allowed this, otherwise it couldn't happen. It was allowed to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Uniquely anti-God. And who is the one person that's the most uniquely anti-God? Satan. Because he's been brooding over this whole situation for we don't know how many thousands of years as to when the fall occurred. And so, unlike Antiochus, Antichrist will be successful in everything he accomplishes. He will bring about an apparent peace for three and a half years. He will then bring destruction and rule for three and a half years. Nobody can defeat him except who? God. God's the one who overthrows him. Joseph Maccabee overthrew, and the Maccabees overthrew Antiochus. Back to Daniel 9.27, which was talking about him. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come the one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate earth. Okay. The emphasis there is mine. So, this is an odd individual. He's missing all the traditional loyalties. 
He has no regards for the faith of his father. And it's reasonable to believe from this and elsewhere that although he comes out of that long Roman Empire, that he may be Jewish something, and therefore the faith of his fathers here could be in Judaism, but it doesn't have to be. This is a world leader. And the fact that he brings peace to Israel doesn't necessitate him being Jewish. And then it's interesting, it talks about he has no loyalty to womankind. That doesn't just mean he isn't married, because he could be married and so on. And Campbell puts it in a way that maybe kind of explains this. It's a little unclear. The expression, the desire of women, probably refers to the desire of Hebrew women in pre-Messianic times to be the mother of the Messiah. It is plain that the Antichrist will reject any and all deities, and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. So it could be, again, a denier of the virgin birth. He's trying to deny everything about Christ. Remember, what is his desire? To become Christ. This is Satan's attempt to create his own trinity. Himself as God, the Antichrist as Christ, and the second beast as the Holy Spirit. Right? And so everything he's doing is trying to create his own heaven, his own deity, his own Godhead. Now, there are those, and a lot of Christians have taken this view historically, that this is why we know that the Antichrist is going to come out of Rome because of the teachings of celibacy. I'm sorry, I think that's really reaching. Yes, Hislop wrote a whole book on why the Roman Orthodoxy was going to be the Antichrist in Babylon. I don't know that you can draw that from Scripture. Okay. Again, I think some argue that the Antichrist will be Jewish, and I'm not holding my breath to see a Jewish pope. <laughs> Somehow, I can't see that happening. But I don't think it's necessary to come to that conclusion. What happens is the angel was telling Daniel that this individual has no regard for any god. The false religion set up under the Antichrist is not trying to bring in all the other faiths. It's creating its own religion to worship him. And remember, what was Satan's goal? It was to receive the worship of created humanity. He wanted to become our God. And that hasn't changed. It hasn't worked out well for him. I mean, we're too busy being our own gods to want to follow him. But this is his last attempt during the tribulation period to become a god to humanity. Did they, did they like the Egyptian pharaohs, did they all believe they were gods? Oh, sure. But there were all the other gods in the Egyptian pantheon, too. They did not believe it was in the latter years of the Egyptian empire that they started to believe in monotheism, but even that was following one of the Egyptian gods. But if you go back to the whole point of the plagues, where each one of those plagues was God's, in effect, attack on one of the Egyptian gods, showing his power over all of their gods. So they were a polytheist nation, and they wanted and declared themselves gods. But even Rome, up until the time of Constantine, was really kind of polytheistic. Even when the Caesars were declaring themselves gods, at the same time, they were declaring themselves as one of the gods they were still following the old gods of Rome. So 
a lot of these cultures, even ones as enlightened as Greece and Rome, were nevertheless polytheist. Most cultures have been polytheists uh, in ancient times. It's only really Judaism, because it was connected to God, that was monotheist, and then later monotheism spread some. And then we revert, as I've said on other occasions, and I hope people are listening on the podcast during this, Mormonism is nothing more than ancient paganism because it's polytheist. It believes in multiple gods. In that isn't the goal of Mormonism. If you are really, really, really a top dog Mormon, you'll become a god and have your own universe to go off and play with. So they're polytheists. You might want to tell them that and see how far that gets you with them at the door. Mm. So you can't be Christian, you're polytheists. Yeah, you believe in God. He's just one God, and he was originally a man, just like everybody. Oh, well, maybe that's why they were calling fire and brimstone down on me in the, from the courtyard. I don't remember what I said to him. Anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> the only God this person has, because it says it's the God of fortresses, is the God of war. Destruction is what he brings to the world. And that's what we see as we look at his career here. And that moves on into 1140. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rest upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through, and he shall come into the glorious lands, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hands. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of the treasuries of gold and of silver, and of the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So he collects wealth all over the place. He expands his power base. And war breaks out in the Middle East. Boy, what a surprise. And the nations from the north and the south of what? Israel come down into Israel against the Antichrist. But he brings destruction. He wins all these battles. It won't exactly be a peaceful time. And remember what else is going on during this period. All kinds of natural judgments that God's bringing down on the earth, right? So Israel may be at peace, protected, but the world at large is a place of war, chaos, civil war, natural disasters. It makes the last few months look like times of peace. See, his rule is the tribulation period. And Satan is not a creator. Satan is a bringer of destruction and chaos. And this period will be like that. And what's weird about this, and this is where it gets a little uncomfortable to try to understand what's happening here. 12.1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been known since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let's just stop there for a minute. So what happens is God sends the archangel Michael as one of the protectors of Israel during this period. Because this is clearly, as we move through it, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of the tribulation, because Remary makes very clear that this time will be worse than anything Israel's ever gone through. Now think about that for a minute. We've got the Holocaust. We've got all the pogroms that went on during the Middle Ages. None of that compares to what's happening at this point in time. And that's the tribulation. And so the angel Michael is involved in this. I don't understand how all this works. But there's spiritual work going on at the same time. That's not surprising either. And notice we see Jews that are following, right? Their name is written in the book. What does that mean? These are the ones who will be following the Messiah. It's not clear from Daniel, but it's clear from Revelation, which becomes commentary then to this, doesn't it? So they become the testimony to others around the world. And that's because they'll finally listen to the prophets. Isaiah 53, 5. Zechariah 12.10 He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and peace for mercy. So that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps for the firstborn. You know what's really sad is these are these verses are so clear to us and they're available to the Jew today and a lot of times they skip them and the reason is obvious because you look at them and they're obviously pointing to Christ and yet we're told the day will come right when they will look and will accept and will understand as a nation but individually. Yet many Jews are still being saved today, especially out of, this is what's interesting, mostly out of religious Judaism, right? Because they know the scripture. The non-religious Jew is as hard to reach as any other agnostic because they don't even know their own history. As one I've got, was talking to somebody who was talking about their father who's Jewish, and was talking about, well, what about Moses and all this? Well, those are just stories. They didn't even believe their own history. They were just the mythology of Judaism. Can you imagine that being your history and just writing it off as just fairy tales? Mm -hmm. Sad. So here it is in Isaiah, and of course Isaiah 53 is never written in the synagogue for obvious reasons. But in Zechariah and in elsewhere, clearly pointing to Christ. So obviously we've got to reinterpret those to mean something else. But there's good news. And the good news is what? They're going to be delivered. See, this is why all this is being given to Daniel is to give him hope. Isn't that what he prayed for? For his people? For Israel? What's going to happen? Are we going to come out of exile? Okay, yes, you're coming out of exile fairly soon, but 
But it's going to end. It's going to become whole. And this is, again, this becomes the basis of our own security. God is a promise-keeping God. Right? We know he has kept his promises and will keep his promises to Israel, so we know he keeps his promises to us. We can be secure in our salvation. I find it so sad for those believers who grow up in environments where they're taught that they can lose their salvation. Because what does that mean? That means it's dependent on, I can't do anything to be saved, but it's dependent on me to keep being saved. Now, explain to me how if you can't do anything to be saved, you can then live good enough to keep saved. Somehow, that doesn't make sense to me, but what do I know? And so, the message concludes with this message of resurrection. And yes, there's going to be a, a bodily resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, remember, what's, timing is a whole different thing, right? There's the rapture, which is the resurrection of the church. The first resurrection was Christ. The next resurrection is the rapture of the church where we receive our resurrected bodies, right? Okay. So then there is the resurrection of those who die in the tribulation period. And then there's the resurrection of the unrighteous. So it's not just one day everybody gets resurrected. But the point here is that there is a resurrection of the righteous to God's presence and the lost to eternal judgment. Jesus said it in John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we can tell people they are going to be resurrected. They are going to face God's judgment. And that's the message. Well, that's awfully harsh. I thought God was loving. I'm not going to follow any God who would judge. Excuse me. God is just. We complain legitimately about the world being unjust, right? People escaping the consequences of their actions. God would not be a just God unless he judged the lost, would he? That wouldn't be righteous, would it? He has to judge. And that's why he paid the price, because he doesn't want to judge. See, the good judge is the one who doesn't want to punish, but will do so because he has no choice. And so he took the punishment so that he wouldn't have to judge us. But people have a perfect right to reject that. People you know, your neighbors, you're standing next to in the shopping line, you're sitting next to in class. You're, these are all good people from a human standpoint, aren't they? And lately you can see how good people basically are is with all the vitriol flowing even from people you thought were nice people who are getting so ugly and freaked out about stuff, right? And suddenly you find out, oh, maybe they're not quite as nice as I thought they were. And so, the same message we find all through Scripture. The God of the Old Testament is not an angry God. We're told about his loving and his mercifulness and all of that. Christ is not the meek and mild. We see him chasing the money changes out with a whip and we see him bringing judgment and revelation. God is righteous. God is just. 
But God is loving and God is merciful. And those are not contradictory. And that's the message that we have. That's the full gospel message. It's not speaking in tongues and rolling on the floor. It's God is just, God is righteous, God is merciful, and God is loving. That he provides a way of salvation and judgment. So, we come to the end, or maybe it's the beginning of the story. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And it's interesting, I always figured Daniel was then sitting down and reading all the stuff, trying to figure out what it meant himself, because uh, he had sealed it up. But Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand towards the heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And then would be the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to the end of all things that would be finished. And I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, and the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, and those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the way it's going to be. This is the time. The two angels appear. They're not identified. And Daniel's vision is sealed until the last times, until they're fulfilled. And it's going to be preserved for the benefit of those who are living there. And as time passes, it says it becomes more clear in its content. And isn't that the case? Because as the New Testament is written, as John is given the vision of Revelation, now we have more information and we have a better understanding of what was given to Daniel. The operative word being better, it's still not totally clear. And by the way, that's okay. We don't have to understand all of this. God is going to do what he's going to do. That's the great thing. If we come to parts we don't get, it's okay to say, mm -hmm. Be honest about it. We don't know. That's okay. It's not a requirement. What's the requirement? That we know that, one, we understand how the tribulation period works, not because that is going to affect us, but because it's a fulfillment of the promises God makes to Israel. What? Because of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The other thing is, they will understand at that time when it's going on, what's going on, and so then it becomes a great message of hope because in the middle of all of that, they'll know it's going to end and when it's going to end. We have a tendency, especially when we're young, but still hang on to it as we get older. When we're in the middle of a mess, it's going to be like this forever. 
It's just never going to end. God, uh, no, it's like this today. We don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow. I've never been one of those that did the five-year plans. I have no idea what's going on in five. I'm not opposed to them. I'm just saying, nummy. But when you're in the middle of the tribulation period and you can read this and you know when it started, you know when it's going to end, you know what's, how it's going to end up, that's going to be a real comfort to them in the middle of all that. Because what did Jesus say? If it didn't come to an end, there wouldn't be anybody left and that's what it's going to feel like. The world is coming to an end that will feel like. And in a sense it is, isn't it? So it's a comfort. It's a comfort when Israel suffers the persecution for three and a half years. But at the end, Israel will be broken. But this brokenness will lead them to recognize who the Messiah is and bring about their salvation. The tribulation will end and Satan will fall under God's hand of judgment. And he's already lost, but the culmination of that loss will start to occur at the end of the tribulation period and finally be sealed at the end of the millennium. So we can trust that portion which we don't understand because about two-thirds of it or more we do understand. And that's the other reason that Daniel's being told over time people will understand it because the bulk of it has been fulfilled already, hasn't it? And we can tie it to history. I'd love to teach a secular history class and whip out the book of Daniel, you know, study about Medo-Persia and Egypt and the fall of Alexander and go, oh, and by the way, here, read this text. This was written hundreds of years before the fact and here it is all explained to you. See how far you get away with that in the secular setting. But we know the rest of it's going to be fulfilled literally because so much of it already has. We have a real advantage over Daniel. <laughs> We're looking back over hundreds of years. And so that's why it's an encouragement to us. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it seems really hard to figure out how to draw application out of all this prophetic stuff. <laughs> Leopold says that when he says... This chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We don't see how it could be used for a sermon or for sermons. In other words, Leopold says, I don't know what you're going to do with it. It's an interesting Bible study, but I don't know how you turn it into a sermon, meaning I don't know how you make it applicable. Well, I think we can always find things that are applicable where Christ is present. First of all, we see the Antichrist example. He exhibits no respect for anyone other than himself. That's not such a unique condition, is it? <laughs> Seems like we know quite a few these days that feel that way. He's in direct opposition to the Lord. He's into self-deification. Isn't that the world we live in today? Not only did he want to become the center of his own world, but he wanted to become the center of all mankind. And that's what brought down Satan in the first place, Ezekiel 28.2. Son of man, says the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God, and that's what brings down the Antichrist. 
I mean, we have people come out and declare themselves gods, don't we? Shirley McLean. Deities are in bad shape today, I think, so for that one. Or L. Ron Hubbard, I love that. Mediocre science fiction writer. Can't even write a Deanson science fiction book, but he's a god. It's always a Scientology. At least the Romans and the Greeks had interesting gods. Today we get our gods are just mediocre gods, aren't they? And so you can see the world's getting prepared for its coming, not just by willingness to accept anyone who brings an offer of peace, but at any price, but the growing acceptance of selfism. Remember, this nation was formed on the basis of community, of caring for one another, wasn't it? The people, not the government. That's why JFK couldn't even run as a Democrat today. Ask not what the country can do for you. Ask what you can do for the country. Huh? Like I said, he'd be a moderate Republican. And, of course, this is why people freak at the earthquakes and the hurricanes want to tie it to global warming, which is our fault, because when you suddenly start having nature defeat you and you can't do anything about it, it's hard to think you're a god. We've got the answers to everything. I don't have the answers to much. And see, the cults teach one way or another, you can become your own god. Literally, in some cases. Selfism. We want to make man the center of the universe. I always go back to the one movie that H.G. Wells was actually involved with himself. Things to come. And the speech that Raymond Massey makes at the end of the deification of science. With science, mankind can lift himself up and can solve any problem at all. That doesn't seem to be working all that well. I'm not opposed to science. We've done a lot of good things. God gives people brains. Remember, most of scientific study came out of believers who thought the universe was ordered because God created it. So legitimate science started in the belief that it was a created universe and ordered. So obviously I'm not going to be opposed to science. It's not irreconcilable with faith. Good science. But people freak because of the natural disasters. As we always say, that's what the insurance companies think. Acts of God, that he's all his responsibility. But this whole idea that we become gods, and that is people are answerable to nobody. And so, obviously, the ultimate human being, the Antichrist, is going to be a god, right? And isn't that what selfism is? It's just you are your own god the center of your own universe. Selfism is behind PCism. It's created an environment that nobody can be here. Uh, the college campuses are just unbelievable. Oh, I need therapy because somebody hurt my feelings. <gasps> Don't bring on this person. I didn't hear a word he said, but just having them on campus makes me feel insecure. I need help. Send me to the therapist. They need help and they should go to a therapist, but not for me. That's what we're, Britain and the colleges have been doing a wonderful job of messing people's heads up. Anyway, yeah. it's, <laughs> that's why I went to class and got off the campus. 
But this is why the gospel is so offensive to people. Because what does the gospel say? We are God's creatures. Yes, we're important because we're God's creatures and he loves us. Yes? You know, people deny that God exists or anything like that. And actually, the people that do that and show their vitriol against God actually affirm his existence because how can you hate something that doesn't exist? <laughs> well, and that's the problem. It's irrational. And it's because I believe at, their, at everybody's core, since we're all created in God's image, at their deepest core, they know he's there, and that's why they're angry and rebelling. They're the only person they're trying to convince he doesn't exist. That the bottom line is themselves, and to get people to agree to reinforce their belief for themselves. Yes? I think people don't like to be told what to do, or they don't want to feel like they have to submit to some other kind of uh, authority of some sort and so when somebody says there's God and or Jesus and that you know this is what he would like for you for your life to have a good healthy life and they don't want to do it then they're mad at him it's pride it's I'm gonna do it my way Frank Sinatra wrote the theme song for humanity yes Romans 1 puts it very plainly. They are suppressing the truth that they know mm -hmm. is within them. That's right. They know it. That's right. They're pushing it down. They're suppressing it. And you're correct. They want to do it their way. That's what religion is about. It's by earning God's approval because you deserve it. Right? Pride again. Yes. That's what it keeps coming down. This is what the fall is about. It's rebellion. It's the two-year-old throwing a tantrum saying, I want it my way. And that's what humanity is doing. Because it's pride that keeps people from being saved. Because to be saved, what do you say? You have to become like a little child in that you have to turn to him as your daddy and accept him with your whole heart humbly and say and admit, I can't do a thing to be saved. And that's what people don't want to do. So they're going to save themselves through science or whatever. Kamu, the, the existentialist writer, who, if, um, if you haven't read him, he's very interesting to read, he finally ended up committing suicide because he thought the universe was a joke, and therefore suicide was a reasonable decision based on living in a meaningless universe. Why live? At least he was, at least he was consistent with his belief system, yes. God has created us with a hole in our being that can only be filled by him. So if you don't choose to do that, you will never have peace. You know, you'll search and search and search and you'll never have peace. And it's been statistically proven that true believers live longer than non-believers because they cannot have peace. And what? stress is the number one killer of people. Well, and everybody is trying to fill that hole with everything other than the one thing that fits it, which is God. We're created to be in relationship and have impact. That's our primary underlying way we are created. And if you don't fulfill that by being in relationship with God and having impact with Him, then you try to fill it every other way, none of which works. And so 
you have nothing but restlessness because there's, or you kill it with drugs or whatever, the longing. But yes, and everybody has that hole, and that gets back to this whole issue of anger because deep inside everybody knows that does know the truth is Ron was quoting. Which is what brings us to this whole issue. It's why the gospel is rejected because of selfism. And unfortunately, selfism, like a lot of sin, has moved into the church too. Uh, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. About to say, church shopping, cafeteria church hunting is a lot like that. I'm going to find the church that's going to meet my needs or my kids' needs. That's not totally unfair, okay, if you're looking for God to lead you in doing that. But it's about what am I going to get, not what can I bring, right? What's the body of Christ supposed to be? We're supposed to be there, why? To care for, to minister, to encourage, to build up one another. In other words, it's what we can bring. A lot like the brain did when they first fall in love and want to get married. <laughs> she makes me feel so good. Oh, he's just so cute. It's not, <laughs> uh, let's be honest, most of us didn't go into marriage with the idea of what we can bring to the other person. It's how we feel about them and what they're bringing to us, right? Okay, I understand that. When you're in love, it kills your prefrontal cortex. And so, you know, messes up your hormonal system. That's why it feels a lot like flu. Yeah. Your brain ain't working. That's okay. That's why we say a year and a half to two years before you talk about marriage, because that gives time for the brain to start functioning again. But people deal with church the same way. It's like cafeteria shopping, looking around for what you can find to feed you without any thought of what are you bringing to it. And so we, we buy into, you know, it's tough to reach out to people because it's supposed to be about we have to look out for ourselves first. Is I mean, that's only reasonable, right? Don't want to get hurt. Got to look out for your own interests, right? And so it's ingrained into us naturally, and so are we surprised it moves into the church? See, this is why everything we do, our relationship, all of that needs to be based on what God desires for us and from us. How we respond in specific situations. We're talking about the Christian walk here. The Antichrist serves as the anti-example, right? Christ serves as the example of what we're to be. Living for him. It, it always comes back to the same old, same old. Keeping the two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you imagine trying to get unbelievers in the society today to worry about loving their neighbor? See, what a relief. We can't do anything about the future. It's not on our job description. We spend so much energy worrying about what are we going to do with that person that we can't do anything with. Or, I mean, five years from now, when I'm going to say, well, how am I going to... You're not there yet. Today's tough enough. Get through today. Quit worrying about tomorrow. We can't do a thing about the future. God's going to fulfill his word as he mandates it in his way. Period. And nothing we do or say is going to change that. 
thank God. Because that way we can't mess it up. Yes, Antichrist is coming. Thank God we won't be here to see that either. But the spirits in the land, Antichrist is in the land, all over the world, including this country. 1 John 2.18 Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Hey, it's been the last hour for 2,000 years. Boy, you thought your days went slow when you were a kid. So what's it come down to? We're to walk as Christ would have us. We're to give people an opportunity to see the values of God contrasted with the values of the world. To turn the other cheek. To be who he's called us to be. To love and pray for our enemies. Matthew 5.16 let your light shine before others so that they may see your godly works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the midst of all this chaos, who's the ones that are coming to the rescue of a lot of people and caring for them? The church. Who's the one that are ministering to people struggling? Believers. So that we can be. And second, yeah, we have to recognize that there's a time of suffering coming, the tribulation, but there's a time of suffering for people that don't know the Lord just in their everyday life, isn't there? People are struggling, people are fearful, and we have the only message that gives true hope. Religions where you have to earn your way and meet certain standards and do all those things, those don't give people hope or freedom, they just burden them, they make them more prisoner, don't they? They just become one more stressor in their life. But we have a message of freedom. We have a message of hope. We have a message that no matter how ugly it gets, we know how it's going to end. We also know how it's going to end for us. And that's hopeful. Does that mean we're unimpacted? No. It's how we handle the struggles and trials in our own life and that are going on around us that become a testimony because we have hope. But that doesn't mean we're unaffected. See, that's the blessing to show how we depend on the Lord in the midst of the struggles. That's where the testimony comes from. Romans 1.16 For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also the Greek. That's our calling because we're the only ones that have any answers to all of this mess. So that means we're to reach out to those who are lost around us. And what does that mean? What did Daniel do? Daniel prayed. We have to be people of prayer. And that's tough because we're always going at 90 miles an hour. And we don't know how to stop and we don't know how to be quiet and make the time for priorities. You know, we have time to read the sports page. Well, not me because I hate sports, but you know, there's always something in our lives that we have the time to do that gets in the way of the time for the things that we need to do. So it goes back to what Daniel's talking about. What we're talking about is a spiritual battle. And so we pray that the Lord would open the ears of those he does put in our path because we want to see him saved, don't we? Even the people who can't stand, we don't want to see anybody go to hell, do we? Or hopefully we don't. 
Satan wants to close ears, we need to pray that God would open ears. John 3, 16-21 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. We are to shine the light so that people will find the light. And that means our words, our walk, must be grounded in prayer must be grounded in the scripture, and must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit's empowering us. We have access to supernatural power. Each one of us, isn't that cool? But it comes through understanding the word, it comes through being in prayer, it comes through depending on him. Our primary calling is to ministry. Every one of us are to be ministers as God presents opportunities. See, according to the Westminster Catechism, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God. And how do we do that? In our walk. To love him, love others, make disciples. All of that's the foundational statements in which we are called to carry out whatever he calls us to carry out. See, again, every one of us can build something that lasts forever. Nobody else can do that, but us people who nobody will ever know who we are. What we're doing lasts for eternity when we're doing it for God. So, it's the knowledge that we have received God's greatest sacrifice, Christ shed blood, that should be motivation for us to sacrifice for others. And it's the knowledge that one way or another God's coming for us soon, Right? that comforts us, encourages us, and motivates us to be obedient so that we can hear him say, well done. And so we can say with believers of all ages, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. It may be at morn when the day is awaking, when sunlight through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory to receive from the world his own. It may be midday, it may be twilight. It may be perchance that the blackness of midnight will burst into light in the blaze of his glory when Jesus receives his own. Oh joy, oh delight, should we go without dying, no sickness, no sadness, no dread, and no crying, caught up through the clouds with our Lord into glory when Jesus receives his own. Oh, Lord Jesus, how long, how long, ere we shout that glad song, Christ returneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, amen.